reconciled to God. I think that's why J.R.R. Tolkien once said, the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ makes everything that is sad untrue. And we see this event take place, this resurrection take place throughout the Gospels. And what's so neat about the Gospels is we see different stories of the resurrection from different perspectives and, and how this plays out. And we see all these different people involved. We see the women at the tomb involved in this story. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, they're there at the tomb and they see these angels appear before them and they have these encounters in the Gospels with Jesus, a risen Savior. In Luke 24, verses 1 through 8, Luke tells us, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners? Be crucified and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. And then in Matthew chapter 28, 8 through 10, we see what happens with the women. They, they rush to tell the disciples. And it says in Matthew 28, 8 through 10, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And so he appears to the women, and then we read about the guards and the religious leaders. What happens with them at the resurrection? Well, in Matthew 28, 11 through 15, Matthew tells us, While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. And when the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. At the time of this writing, that report was still going around. And then... There's the disciples. In John chapter 20, after Mary Magdalene sees that the tomb is empty, she rushes to tell the disciples, and she tells Peter and John, and in John 20, verses 3 through 10, we read, So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love that little narrative that John adds there. Guess who, won, or guess who got to the tomb first? This guy. He outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. 
says that John saw this and he believed, although he didn't realize really how this fulfilled prophecy. And so we see these various accounts of the resurrection story. And over the last several weeks, we've been taking this road to Easter. As a matter of fact, it's been different roads, but they all lead to this moment. We started with the road that led us through Jerusalem and the triumphal entry as the people threw down these palm branches as they threw down their cloaks and they praised and worshipped him and the religious leaders had a fit. But Jesus, as he gets out of the city, he looks over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps because he knows their hearts. And just a few days later, these same people who are praising him will shout crucify him. We went through the road, or we took the road that led us through the Garden of Gethsemane, and we see this powerful, emotional moment from Jesus who is suffering, who is struggling. God, you can do all things. You can do whatever you want to do. Please let this cup pass, but let your will be done. And we knew that this was God's plan all along, and there was no other way. This was what was required. Last week, we took the road that is known as the Via Dolorosa, and it's this way of suffering, this road of suffering. And this road leads to Calvary, and he carries the beam of his cross to Calvary, and he has the nails hammered through his wrist, through his feet. He's on the cross as he's mocked, as the people down below and the people next to him on the crosses beside him mock him. And yet all of this was God's good gift to undeserving people like you and me. And he would die, he would give up his spirit, and he would go to the grave. And this takes us down our last road this Easter, and it's this road that leads to Emmaus. And on this road, it's these two followers of Christ and they're heartbreaking, and they're in despair. They're sad over everything that has taken place. And yet, on this pathway, on this road, they have an encounter with the risen Savior. And it's a powerful, powerful conversation that is had. And so, we're going to start in 24, and we're going to start in the first few verses, verses 13 through 16. And this is what we read. It says, now the same day... Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And the same day, these people, these followers, are walking to Emmaus. They're heading there and they're talking about everything that had taken place. And really, if you follow the context of Scripture, they're probably talking about what it is they've heard about the resurrection, but it's possible that they're talking about all the things that had taken place. The triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, Jesus' teaching, the, the trials, the fact that Jesus went to the cross. They're probably talking about all of these things that have taken place. And they're walking and talking with each other about everything. And as they're talking about these things, Jesus, came, or Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. Now, we may read this and think that these were the only two people on the road, and all of a sudden Jesus just popped up out of thin air and starts walking and talking with them, but this is not the case. You've got to remember, at this time, everybody walked. 
The roads were well-traveled by many people, and it wasn't uncommon for somebody to come up alongside you and begin talking with you, carrying conversation with you. This is kind of the opposite of what we find today. If you were walking most of the time, if you look at the people who are walking alongside you, it's phone out, headphones in, paying attention to what is just in front of them. And so we see that Jesus appears to them, but yet they did not recognize him. They were kept from recognizing him. This is what is referred to as a, a divine passive, or in other words, God closed the eyes of these men. He didn't allow them to recognize or know who he was. And he appears before them in basic form. It's not some bright glowing light, some bright aura that's hanging over him. And he appears in, in basic human form. Although it does tell us in scripture that he had a little bit of a different appearance. In Mark 16, 12, it says, Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. And so he comes up and alongside them and starts talking with them. And then in verses 17 through 18, we see it says, He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And so Jesus asked, what is it that you're discussing? What are you talking about? Fill me in. Tell me, what is the conversation all about? And we see that there's two of them. We get to know the name of one of them. His name is Cleopas. And this is actually, I think, kind of important. And we'll talk about why here in just a little bit. Nothing is really known about these men. In Luke chapter 19, verse 9, it tells us, or not 19:24. Luke chapter 24, verse 9, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. And so there were other people who were following Jesus besides just these, uh, it was twelve, now it's eleven disciples. There were other people who were following along, and when the women see that the tomb is empty and they find out that Jesus is risen, they go back and they tell them. It's likely that these were two of the men who were there. They had likely been following Jesus through his latter ministry in Judea all the way to his death. And they stood still and their face was downcast. They were filled with gloom and sadness. They had been waiting for the Savior and he was here. He was here. He had come. But like many of the other prophets of old, Jesus was brutalized. He was supposed to redeem Israel and yet he dies on the cross. And so Cleopas asked the question, are you the only one who is visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know what has happened in these days? Really, what he's doing here is he's saying that, Jesus, you are being culturally ignorant. You're ignorant because you don't know what has taken place. All of these things were pretty massive, by the way. The triumphal entry had several people there. Jesus cleansing the temple would have gotten the attention of everybody who was around. He was teaching daily in the temple. There was all the trials, the crucifixion. All these things were very well known. And so how is it possible that you wouldn't know what is going on? How is it possible that you would be left in the dark in all of this? But, you know, Jesus already knows as he was the center, the heart of everything that was taking place. And then we continue in verse 19, and he says, 
what things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. And so Jesus asked the question, what things? What things are you talking about? What is it that has taken place? You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's asking what is known as a Socratic question. A Socratic question, it comes from the philosopher Socrates. When Socrates would uh, pursue debate, he preferred to do so by asking questions about the other person's view. And these requests would force the other person to justify, explain, or further develop his initial idea. And through these dialogues, Socrates would uncover weaknesses, contradictions, or flaws in a person's stance mostly through the other person's own responses. And so Jesus is asking this question to probe their knowledge of what is really happening. Do they really understand what has taken place? Do they really know about what has happened? And so he asks, what things? And they say, the things about Jesus of Nazareth. And here the floodgates are open and they share all of the things that have taken place. And they start by saying that Jesus, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And he was. Jesus was a prophet. He was a teacher. He was very powerful among the people. He did a lot of healing, did some miracles. He was a prophet. Deuteronomy 18.18 18 tells us, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. And then they say that the chief priests and the rulers sentenced him to death and they crucified him. Scripture said that this would take place. Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. And, and what's more than this is we expected him. We thought that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Psalm 130, 7 through 8, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. In Luke chapter 1, verses 68, we see that he is the Redeemer. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Oh, but here's the problem. They were expecting the wrong kind of redemption. They were expecting liberation from the hands of the Romans. They expected an earthly kingdom, not some heavenly kingdom, not the redemption of their sins. And then they say, it, this is the third day since all of this took place. Jesus said that he would tear down the temple and in three days he would rebuild it. And this was talking about he would die and three days later he would raise from the grave. And yet here it is. He hasn't risen. We, we haven't seen him. This is important for a couple of reasons. One, the Jews believed that the spirit of the person who had been deceased, would have, the spirit would hover over the body for three days and then leave. 
But more so than this, Jesus said that he would raise three days later, and here we are, the hour is getting late, it's starting to become nightfall, and he hasn't appeared and then they recap everything that the women and Peter and John had said. They, they see Jesus. The women saw Jesus, but that's just not possible, is it? And Peter and John saw that the tomb was empty, and this means that somebody had to take the body. And they believe that maybe the women were just seeing things. Maybe, you know, it was a vision or something. It wasn't in their theology to believe that the Messiah would die, let alone raised from the grave. And so this is why they're downcast. This is why they're sad. This is why they are filled with gloom. But Jesus responds in verse 25. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And now that everything's been laid out in the open, Jesus gets to why he asked. You see, Cleopas had asked, how could you be so ignorant of the things that had been happening in the culture around you? How could you be so ignorant of these things? And now Jesus takes that same question and he flips it on them and says, how could you be so ignorant of scripture? How could you be so ignorant about what the scriptures have said? Everything that has happened has been predicted, and yet they missed it. They missed Psalm 22. What does Psalm 22 say? Well, here's a snippet in Psalm 22, 16 through 18. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. They missed out on Isaiah 53. What does it say? Well, a snippet, Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus tells them, Here is, here's what it all boils down to in a nutshell. You are either foolish if you have the scriptures but don't know what they say, or you are just slow in heart to believe what they actually say. And here's the bad news you know we're not innocent of this. We're not innocent of this. John MacArthur sums up this problem. He says, they had a selected, limited, partial understanding of Scripture, which is so very dangerous. And we're not innocent of this as well. Too often we take Scripture out of context to find the parts that make us feel good or make us feel happy. Or maybe we read the Bible like it's some daily task that we have to do to put a check mark by it. Oh, I, I read the word today, that's neat, and then check, and it's time to go on. We don't really spend time meditating on it, studying it, understanding what it really actually truly says, to reflect on it, to meditate on it, to study it deeply. Francis Bacon once said to read without reflecting is like eating without digesting. 
And J.C. Ryle says that knowledge of the Bible never comes by intuition. It can only be obtained by diligent, regular, daily, attentive reading. And I want to go back to John MacArthur because I think he says something that's very important and is very strong in the way he says it, but I think he's right on the money. He says, this is to say that the scripture is not ambiguous. God cannot hold you accountable to know and believe what you cannot know or believe. If you have the scripture, you are accountable to know the scripture, and you are a fool if you don't examine it carefully enough to know it. You see, we have the word of God, and so in the fact that we have the word of God, guess what? We are accountable in regards to knowing the word of God, and if we choose not to know the word of God, if we choose to pick and choose from the word of God, and if we choose not to study the word of God deeply, and if we choose to only read it to mark it as a check mark and move on and don't really care what it says, then we're fooling ourselves. So we are accountable to the word and we need to know the word, and we need to study the word, and we need to read the word deeply and meditate on the word. And guess what happens next? After Jesus says this, he continues walking with them, expounding on the scriptures, explaining the scriptures, going deeply into the scriptures, telling them what the scriptures mean, why they are so important. And he starts with Moses, and he goes all through the prophets, explaining to them all the things that scripture said in regards to him. And guess what? The scripture said a lot in regards to Jesus. Most common number of prophecies that people say Jesus fulfilled is around 300 prophecies from the Old Testament. Some believe it was possibly up to 574 Old Testament passages that predicted that the Messiah would come and the things that would happen. Matter of fact, if you're interested in knowing some of the prophecies out on the welcome wall out there, there's a packet that has a bunch of the prophecies where they were predicted and where they were fulfilled. And he just shares through Moses, through the prophets, this is what was said about me. This is what was said concerning about me. These were all the things that have been fulfilled by me coming. He doesn't say me because their eyes are closed, but you know what I mean. Can you imagine that conversation, by the way? Can you imagine walking down the road with Jesus walking beside you, explaining and expounding upon Scripture, telling you what it means? Man, I can't imagine how amazing that would be to walk beside Jesus, having him explain the scriptures. And this plays a big part in what happens next in our text. Verse 28, it says, As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he, was, if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and then he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And so Jesus looks like he's continuing on down the road, and they say, stay with us, come, stay with us. It's getting late, stay with us. Mark Moore points out in his commentary that this was actually a normal procedure. He says this is normal social procedure. The host would invite the visitor to stay. The visitor would refuse. The host would urge the visitor to stay. The visitor would refuse. 
the host would insist that the visitor stay, the visitor would accept. You know, they would just get to the point where they would be like, okay, fine, I'll stay. It was customary among the Jews at this time that they would cease traveling when darkness fell and the hour of darkness is approaching. And we see that he does end up staying with them. And I think this is more than hospitality. In all honesty, I think they wanted more scripture. I think they wanted more teacher. I think they wanted more explanation, more expounding upon. But it was also a hospitality thing. And you see that he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them, and their eyes were open. And this is a really interesting couple of verses because he's sharing this meal with them, and then all of a sudden, their eyes are open, and they recognize him. And people have asked, what do you think caused this to happen, for their eyes to be open? Well, I think the simple answer is God just opened their eyes. He allowed them to see. But I do think it would probably be interesting in that moment. Was it possible that as he broke the bread and handed it to them, that they noticed his wrist? And the whole, the, the spot where the nail had pierced his wrist. Maybe it just seemed familiar to them. I mean, this was something that Jesus did quite often. He would break bread, he would, or he would bless the bread, he would break it, he would hand it out. Remember what he prayed during the feeding of the 5,000? Luke nine sixteen, Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. Something so similar maybe crossed their mind. Again, I believe it's that God opened their eyes and then Jesus vanishes. Jesus could have just appeared to them at the beginning and said, hey, look, it's me, believe in me, I'm Jesus. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he wants them to hear and know the truth before he reveals himself to them. And then he just vanishes. That's a neat trick, isn't it? Just vanishes out of the room. I would think if that were me, I'd be a little terrified, but it doesn't appear that's the way they take it. As a matter of fact, the response is absolutely amazing here. After this takes place, they say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Were not our hearts burning within us as he talked to us and he opened the scripture to us? You see, I, I think it was probably a little bit of that feeling of, man, there's nobody else like Jesus. Nobody could teach like this man. We should have recognized it because in our hearts it was burning because nobody could teach like Jesus. But here's what I think is really being said. They heard the word explained, and it lit a fire in their hearts. They heard the word of God being explained, and in their heart it lit a fire. It consumed their hearts to hear the word of God explained. And so here's a question I would ask you this morning. Are we consumed with fire by the word of God? Are we? Does our hearts burn within us when we hear the word of God, when we read the word of God, when it's explained to us? Does it burn in our hearts? Are we eager to hear it? We should be because the word of God is a fire. Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord. You see, the more you hear, the more you study, the more you understand the word of God, it should cause a fire in your heart, a desire to know more, to want to study more, to want to learn more, to do what it says. 
You shouldn't come away after hearing the word, after reading the word, after studying the word and think, eh, it's no big deal. No, it should burn in your heart. You should have a desire to learn more, to know more, to study more, to do what it actually says. In verse 33 through 35, it says, They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with him assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And now there's this fire within them. They've heard the word of God and there's this fire in them to know more, study more, hear more. But not just to just hear, but to also share. And so it says that they returned to Jerusalem immediately to tell the 11 of the disciples and the others that were with them and what was reported by the women was true. Notice it doesn't say, we're going to wait a couple of days and then go back to Jerusalem and tell them what happened. They didn't say, well, you know, we just got home and I'm comfortable now, took off my sandals, things are nice, I'm not going to go, no, we'll wait. No, it says immediately. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. This fire in them led them to share with the others the truth of what they have seen. You know, I kind of always wondered, why did they name Cleopas here? Why do they say that it's Cleopas? Why does Luke say, hey, here was this one person and Cleopas, and they were walking on the road and Jesus appeared? Why do they mention this guy's name? Well, here's why I think they mention his name. I think he was Luke's source for this. And I think that Cleopas couldn't help but tell people what happened. I think Cleopas couldn't help but sharing this story with Luke and whoever else would listen. I can't help but think maybe he said, oh, you're never going to believe this. We were walking one day, and this man approached us, and he asked us what are, what's going on, and we told him, and then he shared Scripture with us. He revealed Scripture to us, and then guess what? He broke bread, and, and our eyes were open, and we saw that it was him. I can't help but think maybe that's why Cleopas' name is mentioned, because he was the source, because he couldn't stop telling people about what had taken place. And so, again, I would ask, we have the Word of God that tells us everything that has taken place? Are we telling people? Are we telling people about the word? Are we pointing people to the word? Are we pointing people to the truth? Are we telling them about the truth? We should be telling people about the truth. Psalm 96.3 says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. 2 Corinthians 2.14, I love this verse. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Christ uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Are we sharing the truth with people because we live in a world that needs to know truth? Are we sharing the truth? I love how Dwight L. Moody puts it. When a man is filled with the word of God, you cannot keep him still. If a man has got the word, he must speak or die. If we have the word, we must speak or die. We cannot go without sharing the truth to people. And that's exactly what they do. What a beautiful story here on this road to Emmaus. 
Jesus appears and he tells them, here, here's the thing. You had a partial, limited understanding of Scripture. Here's the whole picture. You missed some things, but let me fill in those blanks. And all of this was told that this would happen. And I think if there's a way to sum up this story on the road to Emmaus, I think Paul explains it pretty well, sums it up pretty well. And I think he sums it up like this. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is it. This is the big picture. Jesus is alive. He suffered at the hands of the soldiers. He was beaten, had a crown of thorns placed on his head, carried his crossbeam, hung on the cross while people mocked him. He gave up his spirit. He breathed his last. He went to the grave and the hope of so many seemed to have vanished all in just a moment. His followers couldn't understand that he would actually die, and they really couldn't understand that he would raise from the grave, but yet that is exactly what he did. The grave could not hold him. Death could not hold him. He is alive. And all of this fulfills Scripture. He had to go through all of these things. He had to suffer for our sake. And all of these things were done because of our sin. But because of his death, his resurrection, we can be redeemed, we can be made righteous, we can be made holy, we could have reconciliation with him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they're coming up, I want to read the words of Paul. And this is in Romans chapter 5. And it's in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. And this is what Paul says. He says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as though the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespasses might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace may, or might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin entered into this world by one man, and just as sin entered into this world by one man, and death had taken over sin and death or had taken over one man in his obedience his willingness to come and live and die on the cross, to have his wrist pierced, his feet pierced, to have that beating beforehand, to be mocked, to carry the weight of all of our sin, the burden of all of our transgressions, all on his shoulders, to be obedient to this so that we can be made righteous, so that we could receive eternal life. Truly is a good day. He is risen. He is alive. The grave could not hold him. Death could not hold him. And guess what? Because of it, we have a hope and a future and a reconciliation with God. 
John Piper says it like this, the best news of the Christian gospel is that the supremely glorious creator of the universe had acted in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to remove every obstacle between us and himself so that we may find everlasting joy in seeing and savoring his infinite beauty. There is no longer an obstacle between us and God. Because of his son, we can have reconciliation. We can have redemption. The obstacles that sin and death tried to put in between has been removed. And we can find everlasting joy in seeing and savoring his infinite beauty, his, his glory. We can be reconciled to him. And maybe you're here this morning and you have felt for so long there's just there's this sin in between there's these things I've done wrong there's these mistakes I've made and there's just no possible way that I could have these, this reconciliation but here's the thing none of us are worthy not even one and yet even in all of our unworthiness even in all of our unrighteousness our, our sins, our flaws, our brokenness he died for us we can receive forgiveness. And so if you're here this morning and you've been holding on to the weight of sin, you've been holding on to these things thinking that you are just not worthy, it's time to let those things go. To take them and drop them at the foot of the cross to give your life to him. There's connect cards in the chairs around you. If you want to write it down, I'd love to talk with you. If you want to come and talk to me this morning, I'd love to talk with you. And maybe you're here this morning and Maybe we've put our faith or trust in him, but yet sometimes we struggle with not really understanding or not knowing the word. Maybe what we need to do this morning is recommit ourselves to actually studying and knowing God's word. Maybe this morning we've struggled to tell people the truth and we need to do that. We need to recommit ourselves this morning to telling people about what God has done for us, telling people about what Jesus has done for us. And so maybe this morning what you need to do is you just need to go before the Lord and lay things down at his feet. And you can, right where you're sitting this morning, you can just lift prayers up to him. If you want to come and pray with me, I'd love to pray with you. I know your brothers and sisters around you would love to pray for you as well. And here's the big picture. He came, he lived, he died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. He was buried, and three days later, he raised from the grave. And in doing so, he gives us hope, a future, reconciliation, redemption, righteousness that comes through knowing him. So this morning, if you have a decision to make, I pray that you would do so as we stand and we sing together.